do you remember the first time that death became a part of your life? For me, it was when I was in elementary school and our phone rang at an early hour of the morning. And my parents came in and sat down and told me that my grandfather had died. I was maybe eight or nine at the time. And it was then that this feeling came in the pit of my stomach that said, this, this isn't right. It would be years later when, as a freshman in high school, a young man in our, um, in our school would be part of a, um, a motor vehicle accident. He was part of the marching band, and this hit our school, and we had to go and attend a, a funeral of a classmate. There would be other situations like that. There would be, um, years later, there would be another young man who ultimately uh, was a part of our choir and committed suicide. And so um, the choir having to stand in and somehow um, try and deal with and, and approximate this process of grief in something that felt incredibly uh, unnatural and incredibly wrong. Perhaps the most poignant one for me, though, was uh, from the years that I spent in Florida. I was part of a, um, uh, I was working with a, a through K-12 Christian school and it helped them um, start and field their very first marching band. And one of my students that year who would be uh, a rising senior after I had already moved to Georgia was out on his senior trip and he, um, he was an epileptic. And his parents fought and fought and fought for him to not go on this trip, but he did anyway. And no one was doing anything wrong. They were doing all the right things. They were swimming in a lake, and it was the buddy system, and everybody had their buddy. Except Andy went into a seizure, and he drowned. And going back and experiencing yet again that process of grief, of this this isn't right. As a pastor, there are things that are uh, amazing about my job. This calling, this vocation that the, that the Lord has given me. And as a pastor, there are things that I don't ever, ever, ever get used to. So you have to imagine that when Paul was pastoring in Thessalonica... And all of a sudden, Jesus raised from the dead, ascended into heaven. They're expecting his return. And then what happens? People start dying. And they don't know what to do. Paul is now pastorally trying to walk with them and make sense of something that frankly doesn't make sense at all. We were not designed as a people to deal with death. Death 
was part of the curse of the world, not part of the life of the world. So I want you to hear the good news of the gospel today as we talk about grief, but the ultimate hope of our grief, which is the resurrection of the dead. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5. It's printed for you there in your program. I invite you to turn there. Stand with me if you would. Hear God's word. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security and then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. Let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This is the word of the Lord, and it is absolutely true. Let's pray. Father, even as James prayed a moment ago, Would we be unmasked? Would we be exposed, not for our shame, but for our redemption? Would we lean fully and totally on you? For just as your people said, where else can we go, O Lord? It is you that has the words of life. 
As we've sung in prayer, so we say in prayer now, speak, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. These things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. This is a trigger warning for all the introverts in the room. I'm going to ask you to do a group exercise. <laughs> I want you to turn to someone sitting nearby you and take about 30 seconds or so and presume that the person you're speaking to is born blind. And I want you to describe the color red. Go. All right, how'd you do? See, it's hard, isn't it, to describe something that you, that you take in solely and only by one sense. How many of you described uh, the color red by what it sounds like? Anybody? What it feels like? Fair number of feels like, okay. What were some of the feels likes? Hot, heat, what else? Pain. Say? Pain. Pain, okay. What else? Happy. Happy? Love it. Here's the interesting thing, though. When you describe the color red via another sense, uh, to, pers- to someone that, uh, that was blind, Now, all of a sudden, if you described it as uh, hard, or if you described it as sharp, or if you described it as um, hot, now to them, everything that's hot is red. Everything that's sharp is red. See, it's challenging when you're trying to get a concept across that you would otherwise have no way of approximating. So what we see going on here is Paul pastorally trying to walk people through something that they have no category for. They've seen, they've heard about the resurrection of the dead because Jesus was raised. And they've heard the promises that resurrection is coming. But all of a sudden... People start dying, and it doesn't make any sense to them. They're not quite sure what to do. In fact, it's shaking some people's faith. And so Paul is having to come in and use a lot of visual metaphor to help the people understand what is happening. 
So we're talking a lot about hope, and that is, in fact, where the, the creed goes to. I mean, if you, th- if you ever think that, um, that theology is this, just some sort of heady, academic um, kind of book study, get to the last two phrases of the creed. I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Those aren't heady and academic categories. Those are just plain crazy talk. But those are the foundation of what we believe. It is where all of this is going. This isn't a book exercise. This isn't some sort of just panacea of the masses. This is a king. A king who was born to a virgin who came and lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we deserve to die. A king who has risen and ascended and is coming again. A king who will make all things right and make this world new. That's what all this is about. That's that's where all this is going. What we're dealing with is this idea of the already and the not yet. If you want to see passages that talk explicitly about the resurrection of Jesus, look at the Gospels. Look at what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. For those of us who are here, Death has been the unnatural companion of our lives where we have seen grandparents and parents and siblings and children and neighbors and friends die. What we need is not a theoretical one-day hope What we need is actually how do we live fully and completely as followers of Jesus in this world and deal with the very real pain that is caused by a world that groans for its redemption. So I want to talk a lot this morning about hope and grief, and then I want to talk very briefly about hope and our gain, because really all of next week's sermon is hope and our gain. Here's the first thing that I want you to see. Verse 13 does not tell you to not grieve. Verse 13 does not tell you to not grieve. It does not tell you to have a stiff upper lip. It does not tell you to use the word that I think should be banned from the entire Christian lexicon of I'm fine. It says, I do not want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Think about it. You are the church. The only 
context that you have for grief and death and loss is what you see in all of the pagan funerals around you. Grief is meant to be your last catharsis because that person is gone and there is no hope. Paul says, I do not want you to grieve as those do who have no hope. A friend of mine once said that... um, When tragedy comes, it is up to the people of God to look for what God is doing. See, when we think when suffering comes, when grief comes, that it ultimately just needs to go away, that's not what this is saying. Paul is saying, instead, as believers who grieve, we should avoid two extremes. The first extreme is um, to deny the pain of the grief that's happening in our lives. Perhaps you've seen or experienced yourself something like this, where we say, oh no, we rejoice in the Lord always. That's what I've got to do. I'm a Christian after all. I'm supposed to rejoice. And so this incredible, sad, unnatural thing has come into our life and we say, no, 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 I have to be okay. I have to put on the happy face. I have to be the good, strong Christian. This is not processing grief. This is denying grief. Denial says, God will give me the victory in Jesus, and so I just keep my head down and ride out the storm without paying attention as to why God has me where I am. Paul says, I want you to grieve, but I don't want you to grieve like those who have no hope, because the other extreme is we never actually grab on to hope. The grief becomes all-consuming. Grief can destroy us. Instead of recognizing the goodness and the graciousness of God in the midst of suffering, our worlds collapse and crumble in the midst of life's circumstances. What Paul is saying here to the church at Thessalonica is that when people die, there is hope for you. And so what I'm about to tell you is to give you hope so that when you grieve and you grieve well, you don't grieve like those who have no hope at all, whose hope is lost. Paul wants us to take all of all of the anger and all of the frustration and all of the sadness of a world not functioning the way it was designed and not stuff it and not ignore it, but rather lean into it and bring it to Jesus. That's a different kind of grief, though. That's a grief that's not wiped away with a simple tissue. That's the type of lament. That's the type of grief that gets messy because there's not a formula for when it ends. There's not a formula for when it's all right. It may get worse before it gets better, and we don't know what to do with that. 
because we think that Christians are supposed to be joyful. You can be joyful in the midst of grief. This is what Paul is saying right here. Experience the full weight of what's going on in the world, but do so as those who have hope. And that's why we move on and we see what he writes in verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. See, first of all, grief isn't to be ignored. And secondly, hope in grief is grounded in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But it's more than that. You see, when Paul is teaching on the death and resurrection of Jesus, he is saying very much that his reality is our reality. Why? Because we are united in and with Christ. Because we are united, because we have union in Jesus, we can have hope because of what, what we saw with Jesus. Because Jesus went to the grave and then rose again, we can be sure that that will happen for us as well. That's different, though, than saying that um, heaven is just kind of the catch-all place. Have you ever noticed, by the way, that, that death is the, is the great exposer of the wonkiest, weirdest theology in the world? I mean, funerals, funerals are weird. Christians at least try and make it not weird by, you know, preaching truth. But man, you go to some funerals that aren't explicitly Christian funerals, and there's some weird stuff going on there. I mean, really weird stuff. It's our responsibility as believers to preach well, to teach well, to understand the scriptures well, so that when death shows up, we're not one of the ones that are, that are clinging on to weird theology that doesn't actually show up anywhere in the Bible. I received a note from my mom that a um, family in their church uh, just lost um, the husband, the dad. Um, I was in youth group with the daughters of this family and have been um, kind of messaging back and forth with the youngest daughter who just watched her dad um, receive a cancer diagnosis and go from healthy one day to basically gone the next in the email that my, mom, that my mom sent from their church, um, the funeral was called, it, it was the uh, notification of when the services would be, and it was a witness to the resurrection. We don't often call them that anymore, right? Their funeral, their celebrations of life or whatever, but the church historically would call funerals witnesses to the resurrection because that, that's what we're actually doing. We're bearing witness to the fact that because Jesus went into the ground and was raised again, so also now in this, we are bearing witness to the fact that this person in Christ, though they go down to the, to the ground, will one day rise again in him. And we see that's true because of what Paul says here. And here's the third thing. Um, I'm going to spend a little bit more time here because I feel like 
What I'm about to say wouldn't have been an issue to, in Paul's day, but it is an issue in our day, speaking of that weird theology thing. Um, hope and grief is not rapture, but rather resurrection. So if you've been, um, if you've been keeping tabs on the uh, Christian entertainment market of late, uh, end time stuff and rapture stuff is big money-making things. Um, and you might wonder where that came from. It started, as best we can tell, um, to be most popularized in the Schofield Reference Bible. Um, so this passage, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17, has caused some of the greatest confusion of late. And so I want to unpack a few of the confusing points and point us to what Paul's original intention was in writing this about our comfort and our hope. Because remember, the whole premise of this, of this part of the letter is I don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. Instead, I don't want you to be uninformed about what's happening here. So hope and grief is, is not rapture, but it is resurrection. Um, Paul says in, in verse 16, um, Paul says in verse 16 that those who, um, those who are dead in Christ will rise first. So it's these two passages that's kind of created a lot of confusion around rapture theology. Proponents say uh, is the main source of Christian hope, wherein people are suddenly taken out of their homes, jobs, cars, and airplanes, leaving the rest of humanity in place to suffer some sort of terrible calamity. Um, this is what one theologian points out about um, this text. He says, unfortunately, it's been a source of great, uh, a great deal of confusion about end-time speculation um, that's quite unrelated to Paul's own interests. When Paul speaks of the living who are left in verse 16, it has nothing to do with anyone being left behind. Rather, it simply describes the living from the perspective of those who have died, who are, after all, the primary reason that the passage is here in the first place. He's trying to offer comfort to those who are still living, to those who have been what? Left behind. Because what? Some people died. N.T. Wright says this um, about the resurrection. Resurrection doesn't mean disembodied life in some mid-air heaven. Our hope is not, cloud, not, not floaty clouds and wings and harps, but the re-embodiment, the re-embodiment of God's people to live with and for God in the new redeemed world that God will make. It would therefore be nonsense to imagine that the presently alive Christians are literally going to be snatched up into the sky there to remain forever. How would they, how would they be uh, with the others who, after having previously died, would be raised and given new bodies? We're not going and floating away. People who have died are being raised and given new bodies. Where are those bodies going to be? They're going to be on earth. Here's the, uh, some other tricky stuff in the passage that we need to look at here. Um, if you look at the text, there's this language of appearing and clouds, right? Um, the Lord's appearing 
um, verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Um, this language, if you remember uh, some weeks ago when we talked about this language of, of descending through the clouds, this wasn't a doorway, right? This was a call to remember all of the rich language in the Old Testament, such as in Exodus 16, verse 10, Psalm 104, verse 3, Daniel, um, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. All of this idea of God's glory and God's presence was where? In the clouds, God's presence, God's renewal of the whole earth comes as he descends in the clouds. It's not a doorway. It's a description of the glory of God filling the earth. The idea of appearing, the the appearing of the Lord um, is filled with the uh, rich imagery of the Old Testament of the presence of God filling the whole earth. But what about this where it says, uh, we will meet him in the air. See, Paul uses a word here that's translated in our English Bibles to meet. That if you look at the the secular literature of the day, this Greek word to meet is a very technical word. Do you know what it's used for? It's used as uh, uh, the word that speaks of when a dignitary is coming to a city or to a province and people gather themselves up and go out to meet the dignitary on their way in and then bring them back into the city. So when it talks about Paul, uh, when we will meet Jesus in the air, that's not an elevator going up. That's the kingdom coming down. This is the kingdom of God being established on earth. So fine, we can have a midair meeting if that's what Jesus wants to do. But the locale, the point where we, where the place where we gather together and spread a banquet and a feast is not in some disembodied midair something or other. It's in the new world. It's in the new heavens. It's in the, it's in the new earth. It's in the place where Jesus will ultimately be with his people. Paul's purpose here is not speculation, but rather comfort. He's not looking to this to, kind of, to give a, a blueprint or a roadmap, because Paul changes illustrations about five different times in this text. Here we've got uh, language of, of, uh, of, of meeting in the air and everything else. We move into chapter 5. Then we've got the illustration of, of a thief coming. But then we've got the illustration of people who are asleep. But then we've got the illustration of people who are awake. Then we've got the illustration of people putting on battle armor. Paul's not trying to speculate about what it's all going to look like in literal terms. Paul's trying to give comfort here because our hope and grief so that we would not grieve as others do who have no hope is not that this is the end. It's not that death is the end. It is that death is the beginning of the life of the world to come. And we can have confidence because of where Jesus has gone, because of what Jesus has done, we will enjoy that also. Second thing, really quickly, um, just to kind of set up where we're going to go next week. Um, Beginning in uh, chapter 5, Paul's talking now about, so what do we do to get ready for this? What do we do as we are looking to the gain that will ultimately be ours? Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need for anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So the day of the Lord um, 
also a, a, a phrase, rich, rich with implications. Do you know where we see it first show up, at least conceptually? We see it first show up, at least conceptually, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. Now, you would turn in your Bible and you would say, Genesis 3, 8 talks about God taking a stroll in the garden. Well, here's the problem with that. Theologian Meredith Klein talks about the typologies and the ways that the day of the Lord shows up in the Old Testament. And there in Genesis 3, 8, God wasn't just happening to take a stroll in the park one day, all in the merry month of, no, that's a barbershop song. Three of you got that. God was going at that moment in the garden because it was the day of the Lord. He was going to enact judgment because the fruits had been eaten. We see the day of the Lord show up again and again. You see it in Zephaniah chapter 1. You see it in Joel. You see it all throughout the Old Testament of this great day of the Lord coming. And in fact, if you look at the language that surrounds the day of the Lord in those older prophets in the Old Testament, you'll see very similarly the language that Paul paints for us in 1 Thessalonians 4 of this day of judgment that is coming. And so Paul says, we don't know when it's coming and it doesn't matter when it's coming. All the things going on in our 24-hour news cycle right now, just put all of the end-time charts away. They're probably wrong. I say probably because there'll be that one guy. Part of our hope is that there will be a day coming that Jesus will not let this world go on forever. There will be justice. For more on that, go back to the sermon a couple weeks ago. But also we see here that hope for the gain that we have is living through the promises of God that are going to be true and full. Paul goes on and he says there's peace. When people are saying there's peace and security and suddenly destruction comes upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day uh, to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. Let us keep awake and be sober. How many of you have traveled um, kind of against the clock? Say you were over in Europe and come back from Europe to the States. You've gone from the States over to, say, Hawaii or over to Japan or anything like that. Anybody? Anybody? A few of you? you, So you know how miserable it is to go against the clock. (laughs) When you wake up at 3 in the morning, your body's like, eggs and bacon, let's go. Oh, it's dark out. Go back to sleep. Honestly, that's also what I tell my children, but they haven't driven, they haven't flown across the ocean. They're just waking up at weird times. Paul's saying, that's not abnormal that you're awake and everyone else is asleep. Lean into that. They're still asleep, but you've seen the light. You know what's coming. So live in light of the world that is to come, not the world you see presently. Rehearse your future into your present. 
Why? How do we do this? We do this. We, we have confidence in this because of what God has promised. Paul said, put on then this armor. You look at Ephesians chapter 6, you see more of this metaphor of the armor of God. But here in verses 9 through 11, for God, he, he speaks of the armor in verse 8. Says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of hope, the hope of salvation. Verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. There is this union with Christ coming back full circle in Paul's theology here. When Paul is saying you have comfort, when you have hope, it is because of what Jesus has done. And God has not destined us for wrath. For the judgment, the peril, the panic that will come, that is not ours. But rather, God has destined us to obtain salvation for our, through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another with these things. and Build one another up, just as you're doing. How do you describe the color red? To someone who was born blind. How do you describe the hope of resurrection to a people who have seen and known nothing but death in their own lives? We haven't seen resurrection. So what do we do? We grieve, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We look with confidence to the one who gave his son for us and the spirit to dwell within us, who has wrought change in our life, miraculously even, and has promised that one day we will be with him and every sad thing of this world will be made untrue. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. This is not cognitive assent. This is not some sort of academic exercise. This is putting the full weight of our lives on the foundation of this truth. That this world is not all there is. This world is but a mere shadow of the beginning for all that is to come. Amen.